Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sharon Stevens. Jason Reynolds is a prominent poet and author of middle grade and young adult novels. He's a National Book Award finalist and the author of such books including Ghost, Long Way Down, and When I Was the Greatest. Reynolds recently sat down for an on-stage conversation with Camille Stanley, the former co-host of St. Louis Public Radio's We Live Here podcast. The talk, which was co-sponsored by the Novel Neighbor Bookstore, encompassed how literature and rap lyrics can inspire, encourage, and celebrate today's youth, and how they're especially important for young African Americans. Camille began the conversation at University City High School by asking Jason Reynolds about his initial distaste for reading and writing. It was just, it all felt very other. It felt very different, and it felt far away. And then it's like, oh, we want you to read in school. And it's like, well, all the books that y'all are giving me in school also feel far away. I mean, I'm reading books about the 1950s and 60s and 70s many of which are brilliant books, but if you're a kid growing up in the 80s, why weren't there any books that were talking about the 80s or talking about the 90s while we were living it, right? There were very few books like that, especially if you were a kid of color coming out of a black community, black or brown community. Um, and so I just felt like maybe, maybe, maybe I'm not supposed to read since I'm clearly invisible, according to the literary world. I always tell young people, teachers would say, we want you to build a relationship with books. What a strange thing to ask a kid. It's like, you want me to build a relationship with something that clearly don't want no relationship with me? It seemed like a big ask. And then teachers would say, well, it doesn't have to be just like you. It's got the universal themes. It's unfair for you to underestimate the power of detail. I needed to see myself in the details, my sneakers, the way I spoke, my family. I wanted to read a story about the way fish smells on Friday, right? I wanted to read a story about the way my brother would act when he had the radio and stereo on making mixtapes by recording radio station rap songs. I wanted to read a story about fat laces, block parties. Like, you think about that. Sunflower seeds, hot sausages, ice cream trucks. Like, these are things that we knew. Kool-Aid, ramen noodles. Didn't exist. Cornrows with beads on the end, right? Like, I wanted to see that. So when did it change for you? When did you... uh... I mean, it changed. I was, I was almost 18. The reading came late. The writing came early. The writing came from, from rap music. And I always tease audiences about this because I know that right now, you know, when, when I talk about rap music, I'm talking about rap music. I'm talking like <laughs> rap music, right? <laughs> I ain't talking about Hamilton, right? I'm talking about, <laughs> right? And I love Hamilton. I know somebody's like, what's wrong with Hamilton? Nothing. Nothing is wrong with Hamilton. It's brilliant. What's wrong is that we've been trying to convince y'all that rap music was brilliant for the last 30 years. Right. right? And so, and so I, I, I found my way through that music. I came through the back door, reading, reading rap lyrics, liner notes. Liner notes saved my life. Queen Latifah saved my life because she was the first tape, the first notes, the first lyrics that I got to read. And to see those words on the page and to hold them up against the poems we were learning in school, you realize all these connections, right? Could it be that Phenomenal Woman and Latifah's Ladies First is the same thing a generation apart? Could it be that Langston Hughes' Mother to Son and Tupac's Dear Mama is a response poem? Could it be, right, that all these things are interconnected, but while I was trying to figure this out, the adults in my life were telling me that rap music was going to be the death of a generation, that it was too vulgar. Right, that it was too violent, that it was all these things, um, and it was all those things, but all art form is complicated. 
He was depicting the lives of young people who needed to see themselves. And even though those lives might not be as neat as yours, might not fit in a certain box, does not mean that they don't, they don't need to be represented, even if it makes you uncomfortable. And so I started reading those lyrics and decided that I would write poems because I figured my favorite rappers were writing poems, even though nobody told me that they had been keeping these secrets from us. You know? and, uh, and by the way, if any of you are people who negate this, just know that most of these rappers are in the Norton Anthology. You can read Nas in the Norton Anthology. You can read KRS-One in the Norton Anthology. Everybody argues whether our work is poems, but Bob Dylan wins a Pulitzer Prize or a Nobel Prize, right, in literature. And it's all good, right? It's all good. Kendrick Lamar got one too, by the way. He did, last year. Shout out to Kendrick Lamar, right? It's a real thing, right? It's a real thing. And so that was my way in, poetry. The reading part, I was 18, almost 18, and uh, I had a professor who gave me Black Boy by Richard Wright. Now, I had gone all the way through school. People always ask me, well, how'd you get through school? And I always give an honest answer because I like to honor our young people with the truth, even if that truth ain't the truth we like to talk about. But I got all the way through school cheating, right? Like, that's the answer. Not proud of it, but it's important to state the facts, right? Like, that's the answer. Um, and so when I was in college, I had a teacher who gave me Black Boy by Richard Wright. And on the second page of the book, for those of you who read this novel, you know, second page of the book, main character, young Richard, right? He, he burns the house down, right? Sets, he sets the curtains on fire and burns his mother's house down. And I was like, word, this is it. I'm right? in. <laughs> right? Because it wasn't that I hated to read, it's that I hated to be bored. A 50-page exposition is a lot to ask even for an adult. We be fronting. Right? We, adults front, like, yo, 50-page exposition. You're reading 50 pages before anything happened. Most of us are tapped out, too. But then we get these books to our kids, and we get upset when they're like, yo, I'm bored, miss. And it's like, me too, son. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I've read some of your books, and I'm not bored by them. So when you write, are you consciously writing for Young people, are you writing for yourself? Who, like, who do you have in mind, if anyone, when you were putting pen to paper? So it's interesting, right? Because I, typically this question, when people ask this question, it, it, I find that a lot of my friends, whom I love dearly, you know, the, the answer to this question ranges, right? Usually you hear people say, like, yo, I don't write, I just write. I just write for myself. And I'm, you know, or you hear people say, yo, I don't write for young people. I just tell the story. And, you know, here's the thing. I, I think... Um, I, I'm intentional, very intentional. I'm writing for young people. That should be a badge of honor. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It's nothing. To, my homies are always kind of like, uh, it's like, nah, bro, this is amazing to be able to do something like this. I mean, our buddies who write for adults don't get to have careers if we don't make their readers. That's my job, right? I write directly. It is an intentional thing um, to write for young people, but it isn't to write for young people to teach any lessons. My job is to be a witness to their lives, a witness to their humanity. That's my only role, is to frame their lives in a way that feels real and authentic and to show the sides of their lives that many of us do our best to ignore. Young people are brilliant and broken. They're beautiful and ugly. They deserve to be all the things. My job is to explore them in their totality the best I can um, and to put them on the page as honest as possible. And it's, it's, and it's the same argument when it comes to, like, people always ask, well, Jason, how do you write girls? And it's like, oh, it turns out you write human beings. Funny enough, right? Like, girls happen to be human beings. Who knew, right? right. <laughs> but the same goes for young people. I'm an adult who used to be a young person, and so most of my time is, is spent tapping into who I was. But, but in order to do so, I have to be completely honest about what 14-year-old Jason was like. And 14-year-old Jason was a trip. 
So when you you said the the writing had been happening before the reading, um, at what point or had you always been had you always shown your work to other people? Yo, so so this is a story I'd never tell. So I'm glad you asked. I never talk about it, but. What, what happened was I started to write. Well, I read the Latifah stuff. I started to, like, fool around. And right after that, maybe, like, a month after that, my grandma dies. Now, this was, like, the first death in my life, first death in my family. And it was the first time that I got to, like, the, that I had to hear my mother cry. And all of you in here who've experienced this, you know, it's a strange thing. The first time you hear your mom cry, it even sounds strange to the ear. It's a weird experience, uh, like a visceral thing that happens to you internally when you hear your mom cry for the first time. And I'm 10 years old, and I don't know what to do to make her feel better. My older brother was an artist. He was a visual artist. And I'm like, man, I can't draw no picture to make it work. I don't, you know. And so I sat down and I scribbled a couple lines on a piece of paper. I gave her these lines, and she printed them on the back of my grandmother's funeral program. Right now, everybody reads this thing at the, at the funeral, and afterwards, everyone's like, "Yo, man, what you said in the back of the program, man? I was this, that, and the third. Now, so now I'm having like, oh wait, so there's power, there's power here. You can do something with this. The language is is language is power. I didn't know this, right? And I'm like, oh, okay, you liked it, cool, cool, cool. My grandma had eight siblings, and over the course of two years, it was a generational sort of the generation was passing on, so everyone was dying. And my cousins or my, my aunties and everybody would call me and say, hey, can you do another one of them things you did for your grandmother's funeral? So that was your first, but, like, family publishing deal, yes. of the church. And so the first ten pieces of, the first ten poems I wrote were all to console my family, right? And that was my way in. Um, it was also the ability to communicate, right? And so we would be in the house and, and I would come home and I'd be pouting or she'd say something to make me mad and I'd be angry. And she'd be like, what you guys say, right? And this is always a trick question because you're like, <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying? You're like, I feel like you're trying to get me. You know what I mean? And she'd be like, No, no, you got something to say? It's all good, but like, let me hear what you got to say. And I would mumble it. And she'd be like, No, 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 no. You got something you want to say? Stay, hold your square. Let me hear it. You got something you want to say? You say it. You, let me hear what you have to say. So I lift my head up and I say it a little louder. And she walked to the other side of the room. Let me hear it. And I walk over to her. No, no, no. You stay there. But if you got something you want to say, you need to say it so that I can hear it over here. Say it so the folks in the back can hear it, right? Stick your head up, poke your chest out, and hold your square. Let me hear what you have to say if you really want to say it. And so we were raised to, uh, we were raised to sort of be in spaces where we shared how we felt about the world. I was brought up in a household where it was like, yeah, you can talk back. Just don't be disrespectful. But if you got something you want to say, you can say it. It don't mean I'm going to change my mind. But you can say it. But you better say it with some confidence, right? Or I'm going to think you're being petty. Right? And, and, and that's sort of the way that it was. And so it was always natural for me to share the things that I, that I wrote. So when did you decide, like, I'm going to write novels? Uh, I was and like I'm 27. Gonna... So I was a long time after this. Long like, I'm, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, never, I, I just wanted to be a poet. I thought poetry, I still think poetry is the greatest form of writing. I always tell people poetry is the piano of literature. If you can, if you can, if you can write poems and if you can read poetry, then you can understand all literature. It's the base. It's the base of it all, right? If you can, because you understand, you understand individual words and their weight in a very different way. And so I was like, man, I'm just going to write poems forever because you could write like 20 and be done, 20 words, and you out of there. Right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm looking for the shortcut always. Right? I'm very like, expedient. man, you could write like I could write a whole book in like two hours. You know, that's what I'm thinking, right? 
Haiku is a poem. Five seven five haiku. You exactly. Do some haikus. You could yo, come on, a couplet here or there. You know what I mean? You out of there. And so that was that was sort of my what what I wanted to do. Um, so this is my sixteenth year in this game, and uh, I was signed at twenty one. And my editor at Harper, who was a mentor of mine, she said one day you're gonna write a novel, and I was like, nah. I was like, I ain't writing no novel. That ain't for me. I don't have the education for it, is what I said. You know? And she said, oh, Jason, if there's one thing you never forget, um, don't ever forget that your intuition will take you farther than your education ever will. And um, fast forward six, seven years, I'm, I'm working at a clothing store. And uh, my dear friend came in. His name is Christopher Myers. His father uh, was a juggernaut in our industry. His name was Walter Dean Myers. He was a hero of mine, and Chris is one of my best friends. And so Chris comes in the store, and it was Chris who says, look, man, Pop is getting old. He's been writing these books for 40 years. And he said, I think you should try to write one more book. Because I had tried to write novels. It just wasn't working out for me. It felt it was, it was too much. He said, but why don't you write them, like divorce yourself from all the rules they teach you in school, right? You ain't Baldwin. You ain't Hemingway. You ain't Morrison. You ain't, like, let it go. You don't have to be, right? You, what if you just wrote it in your own language, your own voice, your own experiences, your own family? Like, what if you just did your thing as naturally as possible? And so I gave it a shot. And that's where When I Was Greatest comes from. I, sit, I sat at the cash register of a clothing store with a notebook and scribbled a story about myself and my older brother. And I wrote it as if I were talking to you. Anybody who knows me knows I'm me all the time. What you see is what you get all the time. This is it. The way I'm talking to y'all is the way I talk to my mama. I was just on the phone with her back there. She can attest to this. He right? was. He was. Right? I, Party planning. I, just like this. The same thing. Hey, what you doing? Yo, I got something to do, ma. I got to go. I'm going to holler at you, right? <laughs> like, that's how we, like, I'm, I'm me all the time. And so I sat down and I said, what if it was just me talking to somebody? Just me. And, uh, and then when I was the greatest, was born. Uh, and I started to carve out my lane from there. That's young adult author Jason Reynolds talking with Camille Stanley at University City High School last month. When we come back, we'll hear an excerpt from Reynolds' book, Ghost, and find out what his mom thinks about his writing. More after a break. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back. I'm Sharon Stevens. We left off with young adult author Jason Reynolds talking with Camille Stanley about how he relates to young people. He said that he feels it's up to adults to portray real-life success and failure in order for today's youth to learn something. We continue the onstage conversation at University City High School with them talking about Reynolds' book, Ghost. We'll do it. Anybody, anybody got this? A few of y'all? Word. Before I read, I want to tell you a quick story about it, and I'm going to read from it, because it's important. That I feel like you should know what it is and where it came from. I wrote this thing when I was 24, 25 years old, when I quit writing. And it was supposed to be a letter to myself to lick my own wounds. Now, over the course of four years of me quitting writing, it turns out things worked out, turned around for me. And so you notice that this thing sort of takes some turns, and it comes out on, the hopeful, on a hopeful side on the back end, right? My original plan for it was to print it up using my own money and to give it away. That was, the, that was what I was going to do. It was going to be my manifesto for my friends who had been fighting for their places in their art form, their respective art forms and careers who just didn't make it yet. And I was going to give them this as a way to say, keep pushing, homie. I know what it's like. Uh, I never thought it would be published. And then 10 years later, it's in a bookstore, which is very strange. But I just want to make sure you know 
and it's exactly as it was as I wanted it to be, as I originally planned it, including the From 2, From 2. My original version on my computer file had From 2, From 2 because I wanted to create something that was a keepsake um, and that we can continue to... Because, you know, books, we should go back to that, by the way. Like, like writing book, like saying, hey, this is for you, then gifting it and then having it being re-gifted. I think it's a powerful thing that we should get back to. Um, all right. So I'm going to read uh, just the third section of the book. If you have it, please do not read along um, because writers edit on the fly. This book is not what I want it to be. It was when I wrote it, but things change, you know. Uh, so so don't, don't read along because you'll be like, that ain't the words. <laughs> it don't say that. And then I got to be like, mind your business. You know what I'm saying? It's my book. <laughs> All right, here we go. Chapter three. This letter isn't for any specific kind of dream. It isn't intended for a certain genre, medium trade, or denomination. It's only intended for the courageous. Maybe you are a dancer, moving to the sound of your own future, or a musician, banging, strumming, bowing, plucking, blowing into, creating soundtracks for dream trains, chugging along through thick night, or a painter, spilling and splattering confessions across the face of a stretched canvas, or an actor, praying at the altar of your alter ego, or a photographer, finger on the button like a quick-draw cowboy, shooting, not to kill anyone, but to preserve forever. Or maybe even a writer, for some strange reason, writing expert books and pages of good intention and rah-rah and fantasy and sometimes truth, or maybe even letters to people you don't know but do know you love, or maybe you aren't an artist at all. Dreams aren't reserved for the creatives. Maybe you're an athlete, a gladiator hoping for a shot at the lion. Maybe you're 18 and plan to make your first million by 25. It's not impossible. Or maybe you're 18 and plan to make it to 21. It's not impossible, nor is 22, 23, 24. At 25, I moved back in with my mother and found out she loved to teach little kids and bake and help the needy. Her passion made plain, her dream made real. After 40 years of 40 hours a week behind the desk, you might be 50 and think it's too late. Jump anyway. Dreams don't have timelines, deadlines, and aren't always in straight lines. Jump anyway. Or maybe your dream is just to have a family to wear corny t-shirts and hold up signs and be the cameraman at the little one's games to kiss your child on head and heart selflessly fertilizing his or her passion. Stay awake with them when the dream is crying like a colicky infant. Help them feed it and before sleep do your best to smother that tiny ember of doubt and fear that glows beneath the brush. This letter is for us all. The awkward angels with crooked halos and secondhand wings. The irresponsible and curious fire-bellied babies, the deformed with hearts on the outside and ears on the inside, the squares who wear, who use nine-to-five cubes as planning sessions for the real work, for the rebel children, the wild ones, the long shots, the bad mouth, the side-eyed, the terribly, terribly, terribly envied secretly by the safe, for those who bear the cross, the two perpendicular planks of passion who find life is best when nailed to it, for the jumpers, for the jumpers, for the jumpers, this letter is for us all to remind us that we are many, that we are right for trying, that purpose is real, that making it is possible. But this letter ain't about making it because I don't know nothing about that. I don't know nothing about that at all. Besides, I'm not sure making it even matters so much. So I know earlier we, we were talking backstage, you were uh, saying that you got, to, you got to spend some time with some middle schoolers earlier today, yeah. right? 
And um, you said that a lot of times when you go into these spaces, you have an ulterior motive. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So why don't we talk about that ulterior motive? Yeah, yeah. So I go to it. So look, here's what happens, right? So like school calls and says, we want you to come and talk to our kids. And what the school really is saying is, we want you to come and tell our kids to read and write. <laughs> right? And like, that's really what it is, right? But that's not what I ever, I just don't, I just don't do that. Um, and the reason why is because, for a few reasons. Number one, your kid's already in school. For somebody to come into their school and tell them the same thing you've been telling them just don't work. Right? Young people don't invest in product, they invest in people. That's human being, that's human nature, right? I would have bought Tupac candles had he made them, because I believed him. Didn't matter what he was making, I was buying it because I believed him, right? But it was him that I was buying. So I come into the schools and I just tell my story. Most of it's talking about dances, rap music, sneakers, talking about, you know, what kind of food we all like to eat. I mean, I'm in there, I'm literally in there fooling around for an hour. At least that's what they think, right? The truth of the matter is, is that by the end of it, they realize that this has all been a hustle. (laughs) And they realize that what I've really been trying to tell them this whole time is that it's all right for you to be who you are. According to the people that knew me when I was younger, perhaps some of them would be surprised at where I, be, where I made it to. But the only reason I made it here is because I decided to own my story. Decided to own who I was, who I am. And you spend your whole life being told that the language that you speak is improper, incorrect. It is impossible for you to not believe that who you are intrinsically, your culture, is improper or incorrect. And then to be told that you have to read this language because it's a better version of the language that you speak in, meaning you are less than, seems ridiculous and dissonant for us to expect that to actually work. I would have been better off had they valued who I already was and then gave me the curriculum. You don't have to dismiss me in order to educate me. Right? And, 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 so, and so most of the time in these schools, it's just me representing, me, me being who I am. Look, I come in there, I look like this. This is what I look like all the time. I walk into your school looking just like one of them because I am one of them. And I talk to them the same way they talk to their friends because I am one of their friends. I'm not, there's no separation for us. And they, and they need to see it, right? That you could look like this and be like this. If I take off my shirt, I'm covered in tattoos, had them since I was 15. Right? You can look like this and be like this and still be great and still make a thing and still contribute to the world. Right? So that's what I do. I tell everybody, the books don't really matter to me as much as they matter to you. For me, these books are just key cards, golden tickets to, to, to allow me into spaces like this where I can look young folks in the face and tell them I love them. I get access. That's what the books do. They're just leveraging points for me to continue to allow me in spaces like this so I can be like, hey, you know, I know what, I know what they say about you, but I love you. I know what you've heard about you, but you're brilliant. And I'm here to tell you that face-to-face, uh, the grand hustle. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Mm. I'm curious, and this is a, a bit of a selfish question. Mm. As someone who... Um, makes things there's always the behind it like what goes into making the thing and when you're trying to make a thing and then pay your bills by making a thing um it also gets a little complicated so i'm curious if you would take us behind the business of this you mentioned earlier this is your 16th year Mm -hmm. 16th year Mm -hmm. you said Mm -hmm. um so what is it like being a writer 
and being a novelist um, as the thing that you do. Yeah. Um, people are so impressed, right? It's interesting. Right? You talk to people that are like, man, you put out like three books a year. And, and there's a part of me that literally wants to look those folks in the face and thank them and then burst into tears. Because, because what they don't understand is what that means and how unhealthy it is for any human being to work that hard. It's not a good thing, right? It looks good to you, right? And I always say, like, yo, when I'm done here, when my time is up, when my career is over, or when I'm out of here, when I've, when I've transitioned on to the, to, the, to the other side, all I want folks to say is that he tried and he made it look like magic, right? Now I'm saying the magic part is killing me. <laughs> it's killing me, right? But you have to know where that comes from. If you come into the industry, this is before the diversity push. Mm-hmm. You come into an industry and you figure, look, I don't know if they're going to value the stories about black kids, right? Just to be completely honest with you, right? Are they gonna, are, is, 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 this, is the industry going to value stories about me? And if they give me a shot to tell these stories, as Walt Whitman says, right? Walt Whitman says, uh, unscrew the doors, from, uh, un- unlock the doors, and then he takes a beat and he says, unscrew the doors from their jams, right? Now, what he's saying in that poem is, in that piece of the poem is, crack the door, and then he says, you know what, matter of fact, knock the door down, right? And so for me, I always said, if they give me, if they give me an inch, if they crack the door, I'm going to knock the door down, and I'm going to force their hands. I'm going to back them into corners so that they can't turn away from me, and they can't lock me out. Right. And so what, so what happened was I started to steamroll the books through. But, but, the, but it comes from a place of fear, a place of, of uncertainty and insecurity that I won't have a chance to, to tell another story or that I'm going to be starving again. Right. And so now I'm just trying to undo some of that. And this is the part that ain't so sexy. Right. This is the part people are like, oh, man, it's like, yeah, my therapist is real. Right. I like I like. I like to make sure everybody knows. I like to make sure everybody knows that what it takes for me to do this, what it takes for and not just me for all of your faves, what it takes for us to do this is an, is an incredible amount of emotional taxing. Incredible, right? My editors, my agent, my publicists, all of them are concerned, right? Now, they're the ones who are like, Jason, you know you can take a, you can take a break. My mother, Jason, you know you don't have to. You can take a break. But I'm trying to undo. Like, it's hard. And so I'm working on it now, uh, trying, to, trying, to, trying to slow it down. Um, and I'll get there. It's fine, right? I'm, I'm okay, but... Um, so have you come up with any good coping things yet recently? You know, what I try to do is, um, so the, the honest answer is no, I'm working on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I try to talk, this is why I say it out loud, right? I try to talk about it because then you got people holding you accountable. It's amazing to travel the country and there's always some librarian who I've never met saying like, hey, you taking care of yourself? Because she's heard me say it, right? I, I'm, I put it out there so that everybody can be my mama, mm-hmm. right? Everybody, <laughs> I need everybody to be like, hey, don't look, you tweet me, tweet me saying, hey, kid, you sleeping. I appreciate it. Whether I respond or not, I see it and I appreciate that. Right. And so I make sure that I talk about it as often as possible. And then I go to my mother's house and sit at the kitchen table. My mother's kitchen table is my anchor point. I don't care where I am in the world, how many people show up, how many hand claps and awards and the money and the fame and all that. Look, when I get to that house and I sit at that table, the table that I grew up eating, you know, SpaghettiOs at. I'm back to being a six year old kid sitting on my mother's lap. And everything is normal again. My mother looks across the table and says, hey, the printer's broken, and I need you to go <laughs> and figure out. I know you think you, look, the printer ain't working, kid. I need you to go back there. And, and, it, and, it, and it, uh, it, it normalizes me. Does your mom read your books? 
Does my mommy? Oh, Lord, yes. My mom. She, she edits your books, is she? Oh, my mom gets the the first advanced copy always goes like Simon Schuster knows everybody knows the very first advanced copy goes to my mom and she reads it she reads very slowly and so every time I go to her house you know I stop by once a week and she's like almost done chapter one <laughs> and, and you're like and you're like you like it and she's just like hey, you know I'm getting in you know and then you know and then like around chapter you know she gets like in the middle of the book and she's just like you know what these kids are something that I remember when because she knows because a lot of this stuff is based on reality right so she's like I remember when y'all did that I remember when you got in all that trouble I remember and she's laughing 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 and then I get a phone call about three weeks later when she's done and I always know what's coming and she'll be like I just don't understand why you have to end your books like that mm. She hates, she hates the ending to all of them. And any of you who've ever read my books, I'm sure you do too. And it's fine. You know I, mean? I did she, for a moment. She hates the end. Hmm? For a moment, I, yeah. Oh, yeah, I yeah. was so mad. Yeah, I it's like, fine. What? Yeah. I, but I, I, look, I was always taught, look, I, what I was told was you always start a book um, a chapter late and you always end a book a chapter early. Yeah, that's what it feel like. Yeah. That's you exactly You're mad about like. it, but, you know, I actually think it's kind of awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so for the writers in the room, the young yeah. writers in the room, uh, the young poets in the room, the young readers in the room, mm. um, they've heard you tell your own story or whatnot, but I still want to go back to where we started, which you, you said you can, you can go in here and you can go into these classes and go into these spaces and you know that you still might not, when you were young, you didn't get the, you didn't get the message until you were younger. I mean, until, I'm sorry, until you were older, yeah. um, and so, how do you how do you break through that? I think look, look. I think it's about. It's not always about the message. I think sometimes it's about the messenger. I think, you know, we think about like you know what you hear all the time in schools and in libraries is you know we got to find the perfect book for the perfect. We got to find the book, the right book for the kid. He's not reading. She's not reading. We just got to find the right book. What we never talk about is we also got to find the right person to give it to him. Right. Because you'd be surprised. I mean, it's interesting how we expect kids to trust us as if we've given them reason to. If you a kid coming from a certain community, why should I care? How am I supposed to know that you know what I would read? Right. How am I supposed to know that what you really not? How am I supposed to know that you aren't really just making a judgment call based on whatever stereotype you've decided I am, right? Whatever box you think I fit in. Like, oh, this is a book for you. Hey, black boy, here's a book about some black boys. You should read this one. I think you'll love it, right? And it's like, yeah, but I like anime. <laughs> right? How do you, right? And so I, I think oftentimes it has to do with, with the messenger. For me, um, the breakthrough has everything to do with me normalizing and humanizing what it means to be a reader and a writer. I tell them immediately. I didn't read either. I tell them all the time. I get it, right? I tell them, yes. There are a lot of boring books. That's the truth. It's just the, it's just the truth. I don't, I don't even understand why we always, like, why it makes us uncomfortable. Look, there just are a lot of boring books. It's just, it, that is a thing, right? And as attention spans get shorter and shorter, which they are, whether we like it or not, we should probably really start grappling with this concept that maybe we should figure out how to find books where the exposition isn't 50 pages. Let's figure out. <laughs> Honestly, I, I just... I... I <laughs> I tell, I tell everybody, I tell everybody, I, if, if y'all still teaching ghosts 40 years from now, we failed. We failed, right? Language is growing and changing and evolving. Literature is growing and changing and evolving. 
children are growing and changing and evolving. We need to figure out ways to meet them where they are. Ghosts might work today. 20 years from now, ghosts might not work. And if it doesn't, please stop teaching it. Let's figure out how to add whatever's working for that time. And I'm not interested in writing timeless work. I know I hear it all the time. Like, you got to write timeless novels. Man, look, ain't nobody that I love and care about and idolize ever came into writing saying, I'm going to write a timeless book. What they all said was, I'm going to write a timely book. So timely that it touches a pulse of the time and it lasts simply because of, the, of, of how it shook, the, shook the, the zeitgeist in the time in which it was written. I'm not trying to, in order to write a timely book, you've got to write something vague and ambiguous. Because you've got to touch all these different pockets and be afraid to check any certain box you can't fit into. Like, I'm not interested in that. I'm going to write something super, like, hyper-contemporary so that the kids can get down with it. And if it, don't last for, if it don't last 50 years, I could care less if it created a generation of readers. I'm good. It's such an arrogance to be like, it needs to last 100 years. What an ego. Give me, give me 10 solid years. Enough, enough time to raise an entire generation on these books and they can go on and do their own thing. I don't need a 50 year. I don't need all that. Welcome back to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sharon Stevens. We're listening to a talk with Camille Stanley and New York Times bestselling author Jason Reynolds at an event at University City High School, co-sponsored by the Novel Neighbor Bookstore. The event was recorded last month and ended with a Q&A session with a young audience. Hi, Mr. Reynolds. How you doing, brother? Um, growing up as a black man and wanting to be a writer and artist, when you were growing up like young kids, were you ever, did anyone ever like, whether it be white or non-black people, ever give you fear that you would not make it and you would just flame out? Man, you know what? That's tricky for me because I grew up in a black neighborhood with no white people. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, all of my, so all of my pushback was coming from black people, my, my family, right? right? And that's a whole other beast to deal with, right? Like it's a different thing when it's coming from inside your home because your mama say, look, kid, that ain't something we can do. Because she'd never seen it before. She grew up at a time where you took a job and you held on for dear life. Right? You got you a 401. You created a retirement plan. You, got, you bought you a house. You made sure that you would never starve and or be homeless. Right? And so for her, for me to decide I wanted to be a writer was the scariest thing in the world. And then when I, when I was able to take care of her, she was like, man, I'm so happy you ain't listening to me, right? <laughs> right? And, and I knew it was coming from a place of love. You know, at the end of the day, she was just afraid for her kid. It's not that she was trying to discourage me. She just didn't want me to fail or starve. She didn't want me to suffer. I can respect it now. And she said to me, look, man, when you're a parent, you got to raise your children to not be followers, but you never, ever imagine the day that one day they won't follow you. And when that happens, you will be forced to either be a hypocrite or stand on your word. Um, and it was a real, very real conversation between the two of us. And so it was coming from inside the house. I, I grew up, it was all, everybody looked like me, bro. I Sorry, you know what I mean? <laughs> but keep fighting the good fight, champ. <laughs> okay, we've got a question from this guy here. Hi, Mr. Reynolds. How are you? Good. What was your inspiration for Black Power in your books? Oh, what was my inspiration for, put, for writing like Black Power into my books? What's your name, man? What's your name, young person? Sebastian. Sebastian. <laughs> Sebastian got good parents, man. Hey, I'm going to do, do one more over here. and then Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I got to answer, my man. 
sorry. I'm just thinking it all. I want to make sure I give him the right answer. Here's the thing, Sebastian. What makes me want to write Black Power in the books? You know what, man? I'm going to tell you something. Um, I love us, man. I love us. And I ain't ashamed. Ain't nobody ever about to make me feel small about being proud of where I'm from and who I'm from and what made me. We come from a generation, we come from a culture that we're never supposed to be able to read and write. And here we are, unbeatable. We were supposed to be gone a long time ago, Sebastian. And so when it comes to writing this idea of black power, for me, I don't think, I don't even think about it that way. Because the truth is, just showing blackness, or, or just showing blackness like as, as something to be celebrated and praised, something as whole, is powerful in and of itself. Right? Nothing is more terrifying to bigots than, than, than people who are coming from that place where we come from, black people, brown people, who love themselves. I love me. I love you. Right? And I, that's what I want to be read on the page. That's the most powerful thing we have. It's impenetrable. Right? And when I think about how tough it gets for us, how tough it gets for you, and when it gets tough, and it will get tough, ask your mama to tell you some stories. And you realize it, it was twice as hard for her. And when it gets even tougher, ask your grandmama or somebody grandmama to tell you some stories. And you realize it was three times more difficult. We built for it. Black power, look, at the end of the day, black power is, is redundant. It's a redundant term. Black is power. Always has been, always will be, and we ain't never got to be ashamed of that. You understand? All right. Over here. If you had to ask one, I mean, if you had to give inspiration to one kid um, for if they wanted to be an author when they grow, grew up, what would it be? If I had to give. Basically, one piece of advice to anybody who wanted to be an author, one thing, right? Is that right? Okay. So the one thing I would say to anybody who wants to be an author is the one thing I would say to any kid that wants to grow up to be anything. And that is that excellence is a habit. It's a habit. You don't get to turn it on and off. You make a decision. You're going to be excellent or you're not going to be excellent. You know what I mean? And, and, And with that excellence comes another part of it, which is, easy and hard, right? If something is easy or something is difficult, those are irrelevant questions, right? There are going to be times in your life where you sit down and somebody's going to say, well, is it hard? Or you're going to ask somebody else, well, is it hard? Is it difficult for me to do this? It's an irrelevant question. Everything is difficult. The only question you have to ask yourself is, are you going to do it or are you not? And if you're not, stop talking about it, all right? All right, over here. Why did you pick track? Why did I pick track and why ghosts? Did I pick tra- good question. A lot of good questions in this crowd. We got to start hanging out in St. Louis. <laughs> why did I pick track? Well, here's the thing, man. Here's the, here's the, honest, the honest truth about it is some, another publishing company asked me to write a story about some basketball players. And I was so offended. Um, not because, you know, black and brown kids don't play basketball, but like, yo, it ain't the only thing. We, it's like we, we have enough basketball stories. Shout out to my buddy Kwame, right? He got that on lock. Shout out to Walter. Walter got a whole bunch of Shout out to Matt De La Pena. Matt De La Pena, right? Like we, it's a thing. We know, right? Basketball is a thing. I wanted to write a story about track because track is the great equalizer. So you don't have to have anything to run. 
right? Everybody can run. It's the first athletic thing we all do. Everyone knows what it feels like. Matter of fact, the reason that adults don't run is because we know that it feels like you're going to die. <laughs> and so, right? It's a very real thing, right? We, we are completely aware that it feels horrible, right? And so, but, but think, I mean, look, I, I, I think that's, it's, it's a joke, but it's not, right? Think about it. In order for you, if anybody is in here has ever run a marathon, you know that in order to be good at it, you have to be comfortable with the feeling of suffocation. And that's a real thing. You have to think about that. You have to be comfortable with the feeling of breathlessness. And so what I wanted to do was write a story, write a series of stories about kids who, who had grown comfortable with the feeling of suffocation. Right? Kids who did not know what it means to breathe easy and that to be out of breath felt natural. Right? Ghost, Patina, Sonny and Lou, they all are coming from a, a, from a place where they feel choked in, in many different ways. The second thing was I needed to figure out how to tell a story where the, the sport is not about competition against other people. Track and swimming are the only sports where you only compete with yourself. You're running against your own time. The people running next to you, they're just there for motivation. They're not actually running against you. They're running against themselves, right? That's life. I want young people to know your job every day is to get on that track, run your best race, right? Run your best race. Um, and that's sort of, that was where the track thing came from and why I chose that sport. I think it just was so easy to break it open and do so many interesting things with it. Yeah. Good question, man. Thank you. What's the most inspirational book you've read and why was it inspirational to you? Oof, that is a hard one. Um, you know, I guess if I was being honest, I guess it would have to be The Young Landlords by Walter Dean Myers. Now, this, this is one of his books that aren't, it's not as popular as Monster and, you know, Shooter and all those books. Um, but it's one of the best ones. Matter of fact, all the adults in the room, y'all remember the show 227? Yeah, so it's based on that book. It's based on The Young Landlords. Um, and that book was the first of his books that I ever read, and it was the first time I'd seen language on a page that way. Reading the book, I was like, yo, why does it feel like my uncle wrote a book, right? And it felt so familiar, and then I realized that in order to write a book that feels so loose, it takes an extraordinary amount of skill, right? I was so inspired. That's what started everything. I was like, yo, I, if, if he can do this, then maybe I have a shot. Like, that was, that book will always be sort of what I look at as like, this is the, this is the thing that that got me here, uh, The Young Landlords by Walter Dean Myers. I think everybody should read it. It's a wonderful story. Great characters. Willie Bobo, my man. You read it. Have you ever been through something really hard that showed you something later? Say, well, I'm sorry. Have you ever been through something really hard that showed you something really important later? Have I ever been through something really hard that ended up becoming something really important later? Is that what, is, what you said? That showed you something really important was, later. I summed it up for you a little bit. Yeah. Um, of course. Of course. Look, man. I, tell every, look, I try to tell young folks, you know, like I say, I tell them the truth. Right? The truth is one of the hardest things. Uh, here's what I'll tell you. My biggest regret in life is hating my father for 15 years. Um, my pops left when I was 10. And it was bad. I was a kid, and I struggled. Immediately, my life took a, a wild turn. Like, I just, I didn't know what to do with the anger, the pain, the disappointment. Uh, and I hated him for 15 years. He tried, he tried to reach out. He tried to connect. And I was like, I'm good. I don't want no, no parts of him. And then at 25, we sat down and talked. And, 
and I realized that I'd, I'd given up 15 years of my life apart from a man who's actually pretty incredible and that I didn't understand the complexities of adulthood, what my parents were going through and how they tried to suss it out, how they tried to do the best they could. Um, and that's okay that I didn't understand. I mean, I, how could I have known? Uh, and so because I missed so much time with him, you know, he's like my best friend now. It's been 10 years of just like loving on this man and allowing him to love me, allowing him to teach me things that I need to know now at 35. Um, since he wasn't there to teach me things that I needed to know at 15. And uh, I think, and, 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 and all is well. It's okay. Like, I'm okay with it. It's just, but it was a hard thing. It's still a hard thing to even think about. Like, oof, what a gap there. Um, but my mom, you know, she took care of us. And, and, and it was good to know that my father, now that I'm older, man, I realize that parents are people. Now that, I, now that I'm like a mess, I realize like, yo, you had all the kids when you were my age. And if I had children? I ain't ready, right? I'd be, I, I get it, right? And so I think that would be the one thing. And, and, and just understand, and, and, and the reason I say that publicly, by the way, because like you asked me a question about the, the hardest thing or one of the hard things. The reason I always say it publicly is because I always know it's a kid in the crowd going through it. <laughs> I always know it's a young person in the audience struggling with the fact that Pops is gone and what does that mean for their lives. And I want to make sure they know that, one, it ain't your fault, and two, ain't no point in hating them, and three, it's never too late to mend the relationship. Time is a wonderful thing. Did you play any other sports? Did I play any other sports? Yeah, I played basketball until I realized that I, I was done growing and everybody around me was like seven feet tall. That was that. <laughs> I wrestled. I wrestled in high school because I was bullied. My freshman year of high school, I, I was bullied. So immediately I was like, okay, I'm going to fix them. And so I joined the wrestling team. And at my school, they would announce the winner of the sports every day. And so they started saying my name on the intercom every day. And in wrestling, 145 weight class, the winner was Jason Reynolds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm looking around at all my bullies like, you heard it, right? <laughs> you can try it if you want, right? Um, and I ran track, and I ran track. I ran the 800, I threw the shot put, and the discus uh, on the track team in high school. So, yeah. Hi, my name's Henry, and do you write by the rules or? No, Henry. <laughs> I was no, expecting no, no, a better no. answer, but Henry, let me tell you something about me. I don't do much by the rules, brother. I don't. I don't. Hey, but you know what? Here's the thing, right? Because I know that in school you're being taught the rules, and the rules are good. You should be taught the rules. But the only reason that the rules matter so that you better know how to break them. That's the point. That's literally that. Like teachers, look. It's, ask your teachers if they tell you the truth. They're gonna tell you this, right? Like they're teaching you these rules not so that you can be in a prison. Not so that you can engage yourself. They're teaching you these rules so that you better know how to manipulate them. You can't shoot a basketball until I put the ball in your hand. And what they're trying to do is put the ball in your hand. Now, how you decide to shoot that ball is on, you get to, you get to manipulate that. But their job is to say, I need to introduce you to a basketball, right? And what you do with this ball is up to you, right? And so I, it took me too long to realize this. But once I started breaking the rules and really just listening to, to my own voice and what I wanted, man... It's art, Henry. It's creative art, right? We're making art. Use your imagination. Break the rules, man. I mean, like, not your assignments. You feel me? Like, you got, <laughs> you got to get your grades. Take care of your grades. But everything outside of that, everything that's not an essay, all the other stuff, 
Don't be afraid to push it. As a matter of fact, I would even ask my teacher, is it okay if I start my, I want to write an, an, an imaginative introduction to my essay. And, and, and hopefully a teacher will allow for some of that. I think it's okay for us to express ourselves. We just be pushing STEM hardcore. STEM, 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 STEM. Creativity will always be key. Always. So we, we have time for two more questions. Two more so questions. Two more uh, guys here. What's up, G? What's up, bro? How you, man? Uh, I actually wanted to tell you something, and if you give me the opportunity, I swear I'll make it quick. You said you wanted to tell me something. If I get the opportunity? I'll make it quick. Oh, make it quick. Let's do it, bro. All right. So my name is Joseph. I go to Marquette, and I absolutely hate books. I cannot stand reading in the slightest, but I have a teacher here. Her name is Miss Sorensky. She's a Parkway North teacher. And uh, freshman year, she pushed me to read a book. I read a book uh, called Long Way Down that you wrote. And I really like that book. I'm not even going to lie. (laughs) Word. (laughs) Hey, I I appreciate that, big bro. And I just want you to know, man, you know, I'm, I'm proud of you. And I want you to know that. I'm proud of you, man. It means the world to me that, that that book mattered, that it worked, right? Um, and you should just know that I'm proud. All right? I appreciate y'all. I hope you had a good time. Thank you, too. Thank you. That's author Jason Reynolds from an event at University City High School speaking with former St. Louis Public Radio We Lift Your host Camille Stanley about the relevance of literature to young people. The event was co-sponsored by the Novel Neighbor Bookstore in Webster Groves. Reynolds is a National Book Award finalist and the author of books including Ghost, Long Way Down, and When I Was the Greatest. Podcast episodes of St. Louis on the Air are available at stlpublicradio.org. Or you can subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, the Google Podcast app, or wherever you get your podcasts. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Sharon Stevens.